Psalm 1 is basically the introduction and synopsis of the entire book of Psalms. So it's the most appropriately agape thing that it's the fourth psalm that we study. It tells the story of two paths, a path of righteousness that leads to abundant life and one of wickedness that leads to judgment. And these themes are played out in the next 149 psalms as the psalmist deals with the struggles of trying to walk the path of righteousness and the struggle of feeling like he can't do that or or the world is out to get him or his enemies are out to get him or life is out to get him. And we see the psalmist realize that it's his reliance and dependence on God that helps him walk the righteous path. And I think that's what we're going to see as we study these six verses this morning is we are called to walk a righteous path but it's not something that we can do perfectly under our own power. So allow me uh, to read the passage to you one more time. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There are two ways despite how much we think there might be a third or fourth or that we're blazing our own path, there are two ways. One way leads to life and life abundantly. One leads to perishing. One path leads to fruitfulness. One path leads to barrenness. And make no mistake, there is a great chasm between the two paths. There is a vast difference. And this psalm lays out those two paths. The path of the righteous, the path of the wicked. Paul, in Ephesians 2, reminds us of the path that we were on before Jesus rescued us. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 tells us this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Prior to Jesus rescuing you and me, we were following the course of the world, its ways, its systems, It's right and wrong. We were following the path of disobedience, a path that was trailblazed by Satan himself. And we were following our own lusts, the lust of our flesh, the lust of our eyes, and the pride of life. But this psalm reminds us 
that as we walk the path of sanctification, we need to continue to be rescued from the desire to go to the other path. We need to be rescued from our fallen nature, and we do that both by our actions, but more importantly by our reliance on Christ. So the first thing we see in this psalm is this. The righteous are defined by that which they decline from. The righteous are defined by that which they decline. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. This this was echoed later by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.33 when he warned us, do not be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. And there is a lot of bad company in this first verse. The wicked, the sinner, and the scoffer. We see in this first verse a progression, or maybe better said a regression. There's walking, there's standing, and then there's sitting. As we walk away from the path of righteousness, we stop growing and we stagnate. We start by walking in the counsel of the wicked. We are influenced by the norms and morals, the attitudes and actions of the world. So this walking in the way of the, or in the counsel of the wicked is influence. And when this influence is left unchecked, it leads to standing in the way of sinners. We no longer are just influenced by the world, we identify with the world. We identify with our chosen pet sin. We identify with our besetting sin. We identify with that thing that we know is wrong, but we want to feel better about ourselves, and so we convince ourselves it's okay. You know, God meant all that stuff in the other scriptures, but not that one thing that applies to me. And again, we see that regression and that stagnation because we went from walking to we're standing. But when influence leads to identity, there is a result, sitting in the seat of the scoffers. If you remember from our study of Proverbs, the scoffer was the worst of fools. It was the hardened fool. It was the one who mocked God. And so here we see the influence of the wicked grows into us taking on the identity of our sin, which leads us to immersion in the world. We have settled. So we, 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 were, we were influenced, we identified, and now we're immersed. We've stagnated. We were influenced by the world. We began to identify with the world. We immersed ourselves in the world. And as we walk further into the ways of the world, we descend further from God. Our sin leads us to scoffing. We, we're not just wicked. We're not just sinners, but we are, we will become scoffers. We'll become mockers of God. And that leads us to the life truth. Who or what you are influenced by, who and what you identify with, and what you immerse yourself in design, defines the trajectory of your life. Where 
we get our influence, where we get our identity, and what we immerse ourselves in defines the trajectory of our life. So there's three questions we need to be asking ourselves. Um, and there's a space in your notes to kind of remind you to come back and ask these questions. And I would encourage you, you know, when you leave here, hold on to the bulletin and ask yourself these questions. The first question we need to ask is this. Who or what are we influenced by? What influences our worldview? Is it politics or is it scripture? Is it social norms or is it scripture? Is it religion, religious tradition or is it scripture? What influences the way we view our life, the world, what we do, what we think, how we act? The second question is this, who do we identify with? Do we identify ourselves with Christ? Or is there another identity that we carry that supersedes that? Is there something we identify with more prominently or preeminently than we do identifying with Christ? And then the third question I would like us to ask ourselves is this, what do we immerse ourselves in? Are we immersing ourselves in the Word? Are we immersed in worship to the Lord? Are we immersed in prayer? Basically, the question I'm asking is, do we abide in Christ? So what we see in the psalm is not only are the righteous defined by that which they decline from, declining from the influence of the world, declining to identify with their sin, and declining to immerse themselves in a sin culture, the righteous are developed by that in which they delight, or you could even say the righteous are developed by that in which they desire. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night." This is something that jumped out at me. I may be slow on the uptake. Some of y'all may already have picked up on this. But this is something that that hit me as I was studying these six verses that in you know my 50-some-odd years of life, I have never picked up on. But it's in this life truth here. The opposite way of the unrighteous, the opposite of walking with the wicked, the opposite of standing in the way of sinners, and the opposite of sitting in the seat of scoffers is not walking with the good. It's not standing in the seat of the wise, or sitting in the seat of the wise. It's not standing in the way of the righteous. Although those are good things, and those are wise things, the opposite of the way of the wicked is abiding in Christ. So, I, 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 if you don't get anything else I say today, I, I want you guys to get this. The opposite of the way of the of walking in the counsel of the wicked and standing in the way of sinners and sitting in the seat of scoffers is not walking, standing, and sitting with the righteous. That is good things. The opposite is abiding in Christ. And we're going to get to the reason that's the case. John 15, Jesus says this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. 
Already you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. I don't know about you guys, but for me, abiding in Christ is a theme that I keep seeing come up in sermon after sermon that we have at Agape, that I hear uh, the various people of Agape talking about. Uh, I, as I'm studying the Scripture, I'm seeing this, this picture of abiding in Christ come up again and again and again. And, and I think part of the reason of that is, is for you and I to walk the path we are called to walk on, we have to abide in Christ. We can't do it under our own power. I mean, we can white-knuckle some of it, but we're all going to have a breaking point apart from Christ. So God is the source of our delight, or at least He should be. You and I delight in many things. We know what it means to delight in something, but our delight should be in the Lord. And, and, and here... In verse 2, it tells us part of delighting in the Lord is meditating on His Word. And so just to give you a definition of meditating in the context of this verse, meditation could be defined as this, constant reconsideration of God's Word. And what does constant reconsideration of God's Word look like? Uh, one of the best analogies I've heard and... Uh, I will attempt to scientifically explain this. Apparently, cows have more than one stomach. This is what I'm told. And so when a cow is chewing on food, it will chew on it, and it will swallow it into stomach one. And then it will kind of regurgitate it back into its mouth. It'll chew on it some more, and they'll go into stomach two. And then it'll kind of regurgitate it, chew on it some more, and it'll go into stomach three. And I don't know how many stomachs they have. But the point is, they're constantly mulling over that same food, digesting it, re, re, readdressing it, digesting it, readdressing it. So we, when, when we have the opportunity to come in the Word, it doesn't need to be, you know, we did our, our Bible study, and then we don't think of that Word we read again until the next time we do a Bible study, or when, you know, David is up here teaching that, we listen for 45 minutes or an hour, and then we walk out the door, and if somebody asked us what he said, we don't know. But we should be constantly reconsidering God's Word. What does it mean? What does it mean for me? Do I fully understand it? You know, we, I think if we're all honest, some of us believe things that if we were asked to defend why we believe them, our response might be something like, well... I remember a pastor saying something about that when I was eight, or I'm a Baptist, or I'm Reformed, or I'm charismatic, or I'm a Christian. I mean, but, but our answer won't necessarily be, well, this chapter and this verse. I remember uh, a video I watched one time, and it was really intriguing because they were trying to contrast two sets of Christians. Um, and what was interesting is the one set of Christians, every time they were asked a question, their response, or why they believed something, their response was always like, well, uh, you know, 
I know somebody who's like this, so I think this, or my mom said, or I just feel, or I think this. And then the other set of people in this video, it was like, well, you know, the reason I believe that is, you know, Second Thessalonians 2.5 says, or Matthew 11 says, or, and, and, and so we need to be considering the word to the point where we know what we believe and why we believe on it. And I think we know what it means to meditate on something. Because we all meditate on our fears, our frustrations, our hurts, our hopes, our desires. You know, if, if we think about it, we know what it means to meditate on something. You know, when we, uh, for those of us who are married, when we were first dating the person we were going to marry and we were just super in love and we would just think about, you know, I can't wait till the next time I see him or we're going to do this thing together or I can't wait till we, we go do this or we go do that or, you know, one day our wedding is going to be like this and then we're planning our wedding. This is what our wedding is going to be like. And this is what our honeymoon is going to be like. And this is what it's going to be like when we're, we've been married 10 years. And this is what it's going to be married like when we're 20 years. And, and we, we, we think through these things. Or what about when somebody wrongs us? And we think about, I can't believe they did that to me. And I wished I would have thought to say this. When they said this, man, I should have said that. Oh, the next time I say them, if they say this, I'm going to say that. And if they say this, I'm going to say that. And if they say this, I'm going to say that. We know what it means to meditate on something. You know, hey, if I won a million dollars, I'd do this, 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 and this. You know, I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. Once a year, uh, we go to Tennessee and my family, I buy one lottery ticket. I'm convinced every year that I'm going to win that one lottery ticket, and I plan out everything I'm going to do based on the size of the lottery at that time. And I assure you I will do mostly good with the money. I, I used to joke if it was a big lottery, I would buy a motorcycle. If it was a small lottery, I would get a tattoo of a motorcycle. But, <laughs> but the point is we know what it's like to consider something over and over and over again, and that's the way we should be with the word of the Lord. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Delight in his law, meditate on his law. Let me ask you a question. Uh, don't raise your hands. Just answer it to yourself. Do we have a first-hand knowledge or a second-hand knowledge of the Scripture? What is our Bible literacy? If somebody asked us a hard question, would we know? Or at least know where to go look for the answer? Do we know what the Bible says, or do we think we know what the Bible says because we know a pithy saying, or because we know somebody who knows what the Bible says? Do we have our own relationship with the Lord, are we, are, or are we living vicariously through someone else's relationship with the Lord? Uh, I, I have been in churches for, well, I don't know, 36 years of my life. And I can honestly say there are a lot of people, and, and there have been times in my life I was this people, who live vicariously through their pastor's study of the Scripture. That every Sunday, they come and hear what their pastor has been studying in the Scripture. And then next Sunday, they come and hear what their pastor has been studying in the Scripture. And in between that, 
nothing. And so are we vicariously living through someone else's delight in the Lord, or do we have our own delight in the Lord? See, you can love God's Word. Here's another thing. You know, there are also people who know God's Word, but don't know God, because they know God's Word for the wrong reason. They want to impress somebody, or they want to win an argument, or they want to look spiritual. Like, the, like we see this picture of the Pharisees. The Pharisees knew God's Word, but they didn't love God. They had much Scripture memorized, but Jesus often had to show them how they missed the point of the Scripture. Jesus had to show them to the point that He pointed out that they had an empty religions. The Pharisees knew the words of God, but they did not know the word of God, Jesus. And we've got to be careful to swing the pendulum that way. Either we can be biblically illiterate or we can know Scripture, but we're not delighting in it. We're not seeking God in it. We're not, we're not meditating on it, growing on it, being transformed by it. And I want to, I want to dig into this picture of abiding in Christ a little bit more. Because again, because I told you I'd come back to this, the opposite of walking in the counsel of the wicked and standing in the way of sinners and sitting in the seat of scoffers is abiding in Christ, not something we do under our own power, because trusting in our own walk leads to legalism, or what I want to call disobedient obedience. And we're going to look at a couple of passages in Matthew 18 and 19 to see what happens when our response isn't abiding in Christ and being transformed by Him and His Word. It is, let me walk the right walk and talk the right talk and do the right thing without a relationship with Jesus. Because there's a question that keeps popping up in verses 18 and 19 of Matthew. And the question is this, what is the least I can do? What is my legal obligation, Lord? It takes me back to when I was in youth group. I'm proud of a lot of you young people because when I was y'all's age, I was an idiot. My family would tell you I'm still an idiot at times, and they would be right. But like I was a super idiot. Like I, I was the person who totally missed the boat. Like, and I'm, let me tell you. So I'm in church. It was a good church. It was a, it was an apologetic church. They, they were a, um, you know, they taught the scripture precept upon precept, verse upon verse. They were an expository church. And I'm sitting in a youth group one day, and the, the, the teacher is talking about, like, the crown of life and, you know, just all this good stuff about, you know, getting into heaven and, and this, that, and the other. And he was talking about these just grandiose things. And I raised my hand. He's like, yes, Kevin, because that's who I am. And I said, I have a question. All of what you're talking about is fine and good, but I just want to get in the door. Like, like I just, 
I just, I want to get, a, I just, let me get across that finish line. Now, on one hand, that was good because somehow in all that, I was missing the part about, you know, how do you get into heaven? The bad part of that was, I wasn't like, hey, let me come kicking the doors down and jump in there head first. He was like, hey, I just want to step across the line. I mean, I just, you know, just kind of like if you, if you watched football yesterday, you know, I just want to make sure I don't touch that white line. I want to, I want to stay in bounds. But, but that was my mentality. I wasn't, I wasn't getting it that to be gung ho for the Lord, I was wanting to just get in. And so let's, let's look at, I'm not going to read the whole passage, but if you want to go look at it in, in Matthew 18, 21 through 35 is where, where Peter asked Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? And he volunteers in verse 21, as many as seven times. <laughs> I'm pretty forgiving. Look, some of y'all, if y'all had to forgive, you only had to forgive me seven times, we wouldn't be friends anymore. So thank you, Jesus, for that. But he was basically asking, where is the bar set, Jesus? At what point can I finally stop having to forgive people? Peter is asking, what's the least I can do in respect to forgiveness? How little can I forgive and still get in? That's disobedient obedience. That is legalism. That is the danger of wanting to know what the Bible says about forgiveness by the letter of the law, not by the heart of Christ. Then in Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees ask Jesus about divorce. And they essentially ask him the question in verse 3, what's the least I can do in respect to my marriage? At what point have I fulfilled the Mosaic law, the Jewish tradition, according to my marriage? And then finally, in verses 16 through 22, we see a rich young man approach Jesus, wondering what he must do to enter eternal life. And he asks Jesus, what do I have to do to enter eternal life? And Jesus is like, you know, love God, you know, love people, honor your mom and dad. And the rich young man's like, I'm cool. I've done that. I'm good. Anything else? And Jesus is like, yeah, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. That's not what the rich man was looking for. The rich man was looking for what the least he could do to get in. And Jesus was saying, have no gods before me. Because his money was his God. And so what he's basically asking Jesus, what all three of them are basically asking Jesus is this, what's the least I can do with respect to obedience? All three cases are the same question and different clothing. We have the same, same concern of Peter, the Pharisees, and the rich young man. What's the maximum disobedience to minimum obedience ratio I can have and still get in? If we listen to ourselves, this is not in my notes, so I'm going off, off so y'all bear with me. <laughs> if we're not careful, the question we start asking is, God, how close can I get to the line 
of sin before you're mad at me. And we got, we've got to be careful of that. How, how close can I get? So, so on one hand, what's the least I can do to get in, but what's the most I can do to not get kicked out? So when we try to reject the counsel, the way, and the seat of the world without also delighting in God and his word, all that happens is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life returns into our lives in a new and different version. We may escape one thing we condemn in turn for another thing that is equally condemned by God's word. So we need not replace one system with another system. We don't, we don't replace system of obedience to the ways of the world to obedience to a set of religious laws or rules, we replace the system we used to believe in with a system of delighting in the Lord. And when we delight in the Lord, we're not going to ask the question, how close can I get this in? Or what's the least I can do? Because we're those we delight in and love, we want to abound in. Back to the passage Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And then here we see a result. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. What a word picture of the result of delighting in Christ. The righteous, and this is in your notes, the righteous demonstrate that which they are dependent on. The righteous demonstrate that which they are dependent on, and the way, and then your life truth, the way of the righteous depicts progress planted by streams of water. This is contrasted to the walking, standing, sitting. Because if we walk and stand and sit, we're no longer progressing, we're no longer growing. But a tree that's planted by water is going to grow, it's going to grow stronger and taller. Its roots are going to grow deeper. The way of the righteous depicts productivity. It yields fruit. And then it depicts permanence. The leaf does not wither season after season, trial after trial. I've seen some of you guys go through some serious stuff trial after trial after trial, and I still see you bear fruit. I still see you worship Jesus. I still see you serve other people. I still see you give sacrificially to the needs of others, even when you have needs of your own. Praise be to God that if we are rooted in the living water of Jesus, we do not wither in trials. And this word picture takes me back to the woman at the well. Remember the conversation she and Jesus had? He tells us, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. 
for his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, and did as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. In Psalm 3, the first, verse, the first three verses tell us that the first, the first way leads to life. And it culminates in this picture of a tree planted with living water that's constantly being fed by the Spirit, being nourished and encouraged and standing against drought and, and season changes. But the second half of this psalm tells us the second path leads to perishing for those who do not delight in the Lord. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. But then it all changes. Verse 4, The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. The wicked are not so. So the wicked does walk in the counsel of the wicked. The wicked does stand in the way of sinners. The wicked does sit in the seat of scoffers. The wicked does not delight in the law of the Lord. The wicked does not delight in the law of the Lord. And when it comes to the wicked not being a tree planted by streams of water, the psalmist leaves nothing for us to guess. He says that they are like chaff that the wind blows away. You know, chaff is the leftover husks of seeds left over on the threshing floor. It's dusty and dry. It's, 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 it's nothing but dust that if you picked up some chaff and blew it in your hand, it would go a few feet away and you wouldn't even see it anymore. Chaff is fruitless, rootless, weightless, and useless. It is everything that the tree is not. And the wicked will thirst again because chaff is dry and lifeless. It's not the tree planted by water. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. 
Therefore, therefore, so after these other four verses, we got something. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The wicked will not stand in the judgment. The sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Here we come to the climax or the crescendo of the psalm. Because here, the two paths, and as we stated before, there is no third part forever. One path goes on to eternal life, one path to destruction. Paul tells us over and over and over again in Romans that when we are left to our own devices, we all choose the path of perishing. He speaks of this struggle to walk the path that he knows that we are supposed to walk in Romans 7, starting in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but the ability, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not want, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want is no longer me, who I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. And so he talks about that struggle that each one of us has experienced where we know the right thing to do. We know the thing we, that God is calling us to do. We know the thing that's God. And then, like, just our sin wells up in us. And in a moment of weakness, our, we let our flesh take over. Paul further speaks to our state of hopelessness in our own power in Romans 3. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All I ha- all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood in their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God in their eyes. And that's hard stuff, guys. If we're honest, sometimes, we like to look down our noses at those whose sin is less socially acceptable than ours. But for the grace of God, we would still be following the same path of destruction that same path of the world, of the devil in our flesh. And even as we strive to walk the path of righteousness, none of us do it perfectly. But yet, yet let me counter all this heavy stuff with a word of encouragement and hope from this same Paul. All sin and fall short of the glory of God. Oops. All of us. Every last one of us. 
Okay, in all seriousness, there is some hope. And it is from Paul. Well, I'm going to read you from the psalm again, and then I'll tell you what Paul said. Blessed is the man who walks not in the way of the count, not walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor the sinners in the congregation of the righteous. But listen to what verse 6 says. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Gospel truth for you here. The Lord knows you, and the Lord knows the way of righteousness. And when we fail to walk in the way of righteousness, we have one, Jesus, whom we can call on to be our righteousness. We have one who did not walk in the counsel of the wicked ever. We have one who did not stand in the way of sinners ever. We have one who delights in the Lord and in his word always. We have one who can truly be described as a tree planted by water, bearing fruit and not withering. And here's the word of encouragement from the Apostle Paul, Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access to faith into this grace in which we stand. We rejoice in the hope of glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now listen to this, guys. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. So all that stuff about falling short of God and not seeking after God and not being good, Jesus did not wait on us. While we were still weak, while we were still sinners, at the right time, Christ paid for our poorly chosen path. He paid to rescue us from the path of wickedness so that we could be set onto the path of righteousness. For, as the psalmist says, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Hebrews Hebrews reinforces that since we have a great high priest 
who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The Lord does not just know the way of the righteous, He lived it. And even though He lived it, He perished on our behalf so that we can experience the blessing of God even when we fail to walk the path perfectly. And He invites us to abide in Him. Matthew 8, verse 28. Come to me, this is Jesus, come to me, all who labor are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take, upon, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And guys, one of the reasons this verse means so much to me is, is that comment, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Because we're talking about two different things. The invitation is to those who labor, those of us who have brought on ourselves the heaviness of the world. Or, come to me all who are heavy laden. And those of us who stuff has been put onto us, we also have the invitation. So whether the world has dumped on you or you have dumped on yourself, the burden, Jesus asks you to trade it for his burden. So we're not merely choosing between two paths. We're not choosing between a good path and a bad path. We're not choosing between a righteous path and a wicked path. We are choosing a person, and we're not just choosing a person. We're choosing Christ. Christ. 